0: And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive.
1: Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast, where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Belton. In March of this year, Netflix released a four part limited series about the life of Madam C.J. Walker, the first self made millionaire. It received a lot of attention as viewers curated their watch list at the onset of COVID mandated quarantines, with most of the praise facing its star, Octavia Spencer, who received an Emmy nomination for her portrayal of the washerwoman turned beauty and hair care pioneer. Reviews celebrated the introduction of Madame Walker, born Sarah Breedlove, to a wider audience, but some specifically called out its dramatized rivalry between Walker and the series' antagonist, Addie Monroe, played by Carmen Ejogo. Monroe was inspired by Walker's real-life mentor and fellow businesswoman, Annie Turnbull-Malone. The series itself was inspired by Madame C.J. Walker's biography, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madame C.J. Walker, written by Walker's own great-great-granddaughter, A'Lelia Bundles. Now, when I watched the series, I felt a similar frustration with the dynamic between Walker and Monroe. One thing that I remember bothering me a lot from Jump was the boxing scenes, which, in my personal humble opinion, I thought were corny and took away from an opportunity to tell a moving and inspiring story about Madam Walker's rise to success. The storyline of their rivalry also focused extremely heavily on colorism, while that and the dynamic between upper-class Black women and working-class Black women were accurate for the time. Many historians have come out to say that the two women were not only similar in complexion, but that their real-life relationship wasn't as dramatic as the series portrayed. As we see a rise in Black storytelling and Black representation in media, I personally think that the case of Self Made showed me that just because a Black person is telling the story, that doesn't mean they'll get it 100% right. With that, though, comes the fear of making your critiques known, which I believe comes from a scarcity mentality, which often leads us to believe that we have to put our 100% collective support behind any type of movie, black owned business, product, whatever it is, that's created for and by black people. And that somehow means that thing is absolved of good faith critiques. I felt the same way about Harriet, where it was like, okay, we have this movie about this one owned historical figure in the black community, but when I saw the feedback on Twitter, it was like, I'm not really sure if I want to put money behind this to support this if it's not really going to uplift our community in the ways that we need which i later realized was my internalization of cancel culture that's neither here nor there but then i also felt like well we've never seen our stories being told in theaters like this before so i do want to support it regardless of if it's perfect or not so there isn't the case of oh it didn't perform well at the box office so studios are going to use that to justify not backing our stories anymore When I was able to see Harriet for myself, I realized a lot of what people were talking about didn't warrant anything or anyone being canceled, but I found the historical inaccuracies to be more irresponsible than anything. If certain dramatized parts of the storyline were historically accurate, that would be one thing, but it showed that the writers were more interested in drama and making it Hollywood than telling black stories, which we've been largely deprived of, and telling them accurately. Miss Bundles actually, to my surprise, felt the same way about Self Made, which she's expressed in a couple interviews that have come out since Self Made has been released, but namely in an op-ed for The Undefeated, where she went in-depth about the process to make the series, and how she was essentially iced out from the production process once she raised concerns about the historical accuracy of the script. When I read her op-ed, I felt relieved because, again, I feel like sometimes Black folks collectively stop as simply having a seat at the table, as simply being in the room, being represented, and think that raising any type of criticism after the fact towards our own people is somehow preventing us from moving forward and being successful. As a young storyteller, this op-ed showed me the importance of treating our stories and history with care as we're working to tell them, especially since that hasn't been the case throughout history, as well as the importance of speaking up when our stories are not treated with care. So I actually replied to her tweet when she posted about it and her response pretty much sums up how I feel. If our stories were already well known, embellishment might work. There's an element of self-indulgence that takes hold if a writer doesn't really grasp the consequences of veering too far from the facts. If you're familiar with Better to Speak's origins, you know the Black representation is incredibly meaningful to this brand and to me as an individual. I'm super honored to introduce our final interview for the season and to dedicate this episode to Chadwick Boseman, who perfectly illustrated through his life and career, the importance of taking care of black stories and telling them with grace, purpose, and intention. I hope y'all have enjoyed the season of better to speak the podcast as usual. Additional resources will be in the show notes as well as the link to sponsor this podcast and support better to speak in our off season.
0: My name is Aelia bundles and I am a journalist who spent 30 years working in network television news with NBC News and ABC News as a producer and later an executive. Uh, I also am Madam C.J. Walker's biographer and great-great-granddaughter, and I have written four books about her and I'm almost finished with my fifth book, which is the first really comprehensive biography of her daughter, A'Lelia Walker, who was uh, a central figure of the Harlem Renaissance.
1: Great. And um, one thing that I found really interesting was your background in news media. So can you talk about um, how has your ba- that background in news media influenced your perspective on Black representation in entertainment media or maybe vice versa? Sure. So when I,
0: because um, I'm, I'm 68 years old, so that means I've been around a long time. But when I was in junior high school and in, in high school in the 1960s, I was one of those kids who loved to write. I had my first story published when I was eight years old, and I realized somehow at that moment the power of the pen. And I also loved doing it. So that then evolved into me working for the school newspaper in junior high school, working for the school newspaper in high school. And when I went to college, I worked in, at the radio station. Uh, and then got a job in public affairs for a little while. I worked at a, a, radio, a black radio station in Indianapolis right after I graduated for the summer in news, and then went to Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, and ended up working at NBC first, and then ABC. So at that point, those were the doors that were open. The, the women had sued NBC News and Newsweek, and women who were hired as researchers and secretaries stayed in those roles, while young men who were hired in entry-level positions as um, production assistants and uh, associate producers would advance to become the executive producers of shows. So women sued the media organizations, and I was uh, one person who was very lucky to be a part of that. those doors opening also with affirmative action. So I was one of the first women producers at NBC News. And it was really at a moment that was, the the media landscape was so entirely different. At that point, there were three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then there was PBS and an occasional independent um, television station. So we don't, it's hard to even believe how different it is now with hundreds of cable channels and internet. But at that point, everybody was watching those three networks, and you knew that what was being presented made a difference. The television networks really had been quite instrumental in exposing Americans and the world to what was going on during the Civil Rights Movement. So those hoses, those pictures of hoses that we see in Birmingham, the March on Washington, those things had a great, great deal of impact on what happened with civil rights. And I wanted to be a part of the message that made change. Now, at the same time, there were very few black people and women in decision-making roles. So I experienced that while I was uh, fortunate to have a leadership roles and to try to make my voice heard the uh often it was overridden by um you know really unenlightened attitudes not sometimes intentional not always intentional
1: just not fully aware what led you to writing the first book like what was that process you know arriving to um making the decision to write that book
0: when i was growing up my mother was vice president of the mcj walker manufacturing company and my dad was president of another hair care company called Summit Labs. So, and, but I didn't have any interest in going into the, what was the, would have been the family business or working in hair care. My interest was really in becoming a journalist. But when I was in, uh, at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism in the fall of 1975, my advisor for my master's paper was a sister named Phyllis Garland, the only black woman on the faculty had been a writer for Jet and Ebony. Her mother had been an editor at a black newspaper called the Pittsburgh Courier. And Phil um, was listening to my suggestions for my topics for my master's paper. And I think they were really lame and boring. And she knew that. And at the end of our conversation, she said, your name is A'Lelia. Do you have any connection to Madam Walker and her daughter, A'Lelia Walker? And I said, yes, that's my family. And Phil said to me, that's what you're going to write about. So I am forever grateful to her. If I had had anybody else on that faculty, they would have just thought my name with that apostrophe and that two uppercase letters were just a weird thing. But Phil validated it for me. And that really set me on the course of understanding that I had this important story to tell. So I worked in network television for 30 years, but on the side, I was continuing to write and I wrote my young adult book, which was my first biography of Madam Walker in 1991. And then that led to the three other books, including On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, which is the, really the definitive biography of Madam Walker.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the process behind, you know, writing these books, like the histor, like researching, of course, that's your family, but like researching, going through your archives to, to you know, get the information and then, you know, tell it in a, in a captivating way. So, you know, writing a book is, um, re- especially a book
0: that requires a lot of historical research can take a really long time uh, and a lot of discipline and a lot of patience. And my family, uh, we we did not sit around the di- the dinner table talking about Madame Walker, so it was not, you know, that we, and, and I'm glad that we didn't. My mother didn't want that to be, you know, the, my entire identity so that I was able to do the things that were important to me and to follow my own dreams. But it really was my grandfather who was the person who had saved a lot of things that had belonged to his wife, my grandmother, and to Alelia Walker and Madam Walker, you know, their photographs, scrapbooks, books, books signed by Count a. Cullen and um, Langston Hughes, their clothes, their jewelry, all of those things were in his apartment in Indianapolis and later after he moved back to his family home in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And he was a great storyteller. So I learned a lot of things from him. And my my mother, as vice president of the Walker Company, I would go to her office and I knew that there was this beautiful, um, but aging, flat iron building in the black neighborhood in Indianapolis. But ultimately, inside that building, we discovered years later, there were tens of thousands of pages of business records, personal letters, photographs, advertisements, and those things now have been uh, they, we gave them to the Indiana Historical Society. They've now been digitized and are online. So I had a great trove of material, which is really quite rare for a Black-owned company and a woman-owned company from the early 20th century. But then that you could have that material and it just sits there and you're not doing anything with it. One really key um, moment for me is that in the early 1980s, Alex Haley, the author of Roots, came to us uh, and asked about doing a book, essentially a fictionalized biography of Madame Walker and a miniseries. And he was still riding the wave of the fame and success of Roots, the miniseries and the book. And I became the researcher for that project. Alex never finished the book. He died in 1992, but during that decade, when I knew him, he became a mentor and he gave me great guidance on how to organize your material. And one key thing he said to me in the beginning was make a folder for every year of the person's life, a manila folder. Buy yourself some milk crates, buy yourself some hanging folders, and create a filing system. And that has been amazing for me because you know, literally 40 years later, I now have two rooms <laughs> of research. But I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had that in that way without him advising me. so I have uh, folders that have the years and I've dropped in them for literally decades at this point. I have you know more than five hundred names of people who were their friends and their associates and family members organizations like there's a file on the NAACP there's a file on the East St. Louis riot of 1917. There's a file on Madam Walker and suffrage. So I have all of those things organized. So now as I am writing this um, first really definitive biography on A'Lelia Walker, I have, all I have to do is think, okay, what is that? And I go to the file because otherwise there would be absolutely no way to access that information if you just had to go through piles and piles of stuff. You can't remember.
1: Right. And I ask about the, the, the process of gathering that information because I don't think people realize like especially thinking about um, self made delimited series on Netflix, like the process that goes behind, you know, these historical, you know, whether it's a drama like these historical pieces of content. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how the um, the opportunity for self made and like what your role involvement was with that.
0: Sure. So, Self Made, uh, the Netflix series starring Octavia Spencer, is, as Hollywood says, inspired by my book, which is a contrivance that allows Hollywood to use a great deal of creative license and not stick to the facts. (laughs) So, that's the truth on that. Octavia Spencer, I thought, was great. She was the perfect person for the role, and, and I think every time she came on the screen, I felt that she was embodying the dignity and struggle and challenge and triumph of Madam Walker. So I was happy about that. And I'm glad that more people now know Madam Walker's name. But the thing that happens with a Hollywood movie, at least in the hands of some writers, is that a great deal can be changed if people don't really respect the history. There are, you know, when we think about, um, the loss of Chadwick Boseman and the characters he played. He played Thurgood Marshall, uh, James Brown, um, Jackie Robinson, and it, those are real-life characters, and I think he brought a dignity to those characters, and there was a sense of, you know, there's always criticism of a Hollywood film, but I think that he made you feel the dignity of the, those people, and I think think that it's, you know, stayed close to the truth. In the case of Self Made, that really became a challenge for me. When my book was optioned by uh, a production company, I agreed, I had had many other offers and I agreed to go with this particular production company because the uh, producer seemed to really respect my work, seemed to value all of those years of research and all of that documentation that I had done and understood we seem to be on the same page. Unfortunately for me, once a writer was hired and the studio um, was involved, the writer had presented her concept, her vision of the series to me in a phone conversation. And she said that she wanted to focus on the conflict between Madam Walker and her competitor, Annie Malone. And I very casually said, well, you know, I think that's an element, but I wouldn't make that the centerpiece of the story. And when it became clear, I guess in that casual way that I did not agree with her vision, she intentionally made sure that I was excluded from the conversations. Mm -hmm. So I was supposed to have been part of the meetings with the studios, the pitch meetings. I was supposed to have been involved, but every time I asked for two years, there was always an excuse to not have me included. So, but I did have in my contract with Warner Brothers, a clause that said I had script review. And that meant that they were supposed to show me the scripts before they started shooting. And so we had to kind of press for that, even though it should have been forthcoming. Ultimately, I was able to see the scripts and I was stunned because the things that I had asked them not to do, they did. They not only made um, Madam Walker and her real life rival uh, the centerpiece of the story, but then they distorted that relationship. And Annie Malone in real life, who became Addie Monroe in the series, uh, was a successful businesswoman and a philanthropist. In the series, she became a person who was not as successful, who became a really petty person. They contrived a, a, a conflict based on colorism, which did not happen in real life. And there were many other parts of the series that after I looked at the script, after I reviewed the script and gave my notes, that I asked them not to do that they did anyway, including Uh, making, there was the the Bill Bellamy character named Sweetness was a pimp and a numbers runner. He didn't exist. He was not the cousin of F.B. Ransom, Madam Walker's attorney. And it particularly bothered me because in real life, Mr. Ransom was a very strong male character who they could have made into a strong male character, who um, had taken an oath as a young man to never drink, smoke, or gamble so he was a straight arrow and to portray him as somebody who bet on the numbers and then then therefore used illegally gained money to invest in the walker company for me presented a stereotype of both that black people have to do have to be criminals that there's a pimp and there's a a numbers runner and that a black business has to have investment from illegal um gain that was not true they the character of Booker T. Washington. Um, Madam Walker had a complicated relationship with Booker T. Washington. And this is where I think for a really talented writer, they would have been able to convey that. But I think that there there was such a reliance on formulaic ways of approaching, on tropes and stereotypes, and just using the, the same old, same old in Hollywood that they made him into, you know, just a, despicable misogynist, when in reality, Madam Walker and Booker T. Washington did get off to a rocky start. They had some differences of views, but ultimately that relationship evolved to one of respect. Still some contention, but for me, that's more complicated. And then the final thing I will say, because there, there are many things that I didn't like, though I will say I liked Octavia, I love the Whigs, I like the fact that we got to see some prosperous Black people in the early 20th century in America, which most of America doesn't know, including black America doesn't know was the reality. But the last little point that I would make is that the character of Esther, who was portrayed as the girlfriend of A'Lelia Walker was not a real character. And I, there seemed to be, there was a little bit, I thought of some deception with me where I was asked at one point, before I'd seen any scripts and before I'd really had any conversations, and I'm assuming that there's going to be good faith in this, they asked, what do you think about exploring A'Lelia Walker's sexuality? And I said, well, I don't know, tell me what you're thinking. So they first came back to me with a, -A 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 because they seemed to really want to develop an LGBT relationship, which would have been fine with me if it had happened, and A'Lelia Walker had many queer friends, but this didn't happen. But they first came back to me with this, oh, well, we'll have a menage a toi. And I said, well, that doesn't really fit who I, what I know her to be. That, you know, like, that's not like that didn't happen, but that, that didn't really seem plausible for her. Then they came back with a character who was a, a famous woman jazz singer who was bisexual And they just sort of clopped her in to make her her girlfriend. And I said, but I met this person in the 1980s. And she told me they didn't like each other. So that's really not (laughs) the right way to go. So then they made up this character, Esther. And I think they were trying to create conflict, which you have to do in a Hollywood movie. They were trying to create some point of conflict between mother and daughter. But for me, and what I'm writing about in my new book, The Joy Goddess of Harlem, A'Lelia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance, there was a really dramatic real life conflict between mother and daughter, but it was over two men. A'Lelia Walker had two boyfriends. Both were doctors, both were handsome. One was a bad boy, one was kind of a good guy. And who did Madam Walker like better? Of course, the good guy. She wanted the good guy for her daughter. Who did she, who did her daughter like better? the bad boy with the swagger so that was real real life conflict now ultimately she married first one and then the other but that would for me that would have been a much more interesting storyline
1: and it was true the one thing that was really interesting to me like i remember you write about this in your your op-ed for the undefeated how you know people would ask you like what did you think about it like when it first came out and how you intentionally waited until like a few months because you didn't want to jeopardize you know the release of it so can you talk about um that decision and the intention behind waiting and even in saying anything at all because you really could have just you know sat by and let it be what it was right you know the the thing that that i have
0: learned in this process is that getting anything made in hollywood is really difficult no matter who you are And getting something done where there is uh, a predominantly black cast and a black lead is also really challenging because the conventional wisdom in Hollywood is, well, first we're putting up a lot of money and we need to make the money back and we need to make as much money as we can. So the quality can be whatever it is, as long as we make a lot of money. But in this case, they, the conventional wisdom is black things don't sell overseas, that it's a limited audience. But that trope really has been challenged and it partially with April Rain's hashtag Oscar so And then the success of 12 Years a Slave and The Butler and Moonlight and um, Selma and what Ava DuVernay is doing. I mean, we can see that there are really commercially successful films that have Black cast. And in this case, this was a role of a lifetime. There are dozens of actresses who have wanted to do Madam Walker and people who wanted to tell the story. So I knew this was a golden opportunity, but I saw it being squandered. And at the same time, there were so many people who were excited about this, who wanted to work on it, whether it was the makeup people, the hair people, the behind the scenes people. In this case, to have two Black women directors, Casey Lemons and Demaine Davis, to have a Black woman who was the director of photography, to have two Black women showrunners, a Black woman head writer. Uh, those were to be able to know that all of those people were working black actors just the whole range of people who felt so deeply about madame walker and who wanted to be a part of this i did not want to skew the response to that i, I just I, I had watched what had happened with other films and i did i didn't really want to destroy that moment for all of those people who had worked so hard and so i just kind of, I waited. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough that I know that you, you will ultimately get the opportunity to say what you want to say, and to say what needs to be said. And I knew that the things that I was, the issues that I was raising during the scripting process with the head writer and the showrunners and one of the, you know, one of the producers, the things that I told them were problematic because I've been living with this story all my life and I know what people wanna see, they dismissed those things. And those were the very things that the critics and black Twitter and black YouTube had objections to. But I needed for other people to say those things so that I wasn't just um, you know, being the critical person.
1: Your, your comments about everything definitely resonated with me as a writer, like as a young writer and kind of aspiring to, you know, maybe one day work on a show, maybe one day write a book, like all these different things. Um, it resonated with me in the fact that it's like as a black storyteller specifically, like you have to have a lot of care and attention when telling our stories. And you mentioned um, when you replied to me on Twitter, like, it's almost the, the self-indulgence when you, you know, like you say, kind of ignore, ignore the, the things that you raised about, um, about self-made. And so can you talk a little bit about how black storytellers need to, um, or should navigate that? Because you, know, you don't wanna you know, miss out on very scarce opportunities for black storytellers, but at the same time, like, like you said, like not everybody knows the facts about Madam C.J. Walker, not everyone knows the facts about our history. So how do you navigate between those, like how do I you know, express my, my vision versus what needs to be shared? Yeah, It is very tricky. I certainly
0: experienced this when I was a young producer and even, you know, an experienced producer at NBC and ABC, that there are people who are your boss, uh, who or somebody else who's making a decision and who has the ability to say, well, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. I had one of those examples when I was a producer at World News Tonight at ABC, and it was during the OJ Simpson trial. And I was in DC, I was doing kind of feature pieces for World News Tonight, albeit three to four minutes, those were long pieces, not like, you know. But at that moment, it's hard for me to believe this, I was the only black producer on the World News Tonight staff. And the show wanted to do something on this so-called black card. Um, you know, pulling the playing the black card on because that was a much of the conversation among white media and white critics about the trial and so they made me go to LA as the black producer I didn't want to go but you know it's my job and so they assigned me to it I take the assignment so I go to LA and I think if you're sending the black girl (laughs) to go to LA then you're sending me because some maybe you think I'm going to find something that my white colleagues are not going to find because otherwise, why send a black body if you just want a black body? OK, but that's I'm going and I'm going to try to give a perspective that I think nobody else will on your staff will give. So I go to L.A. I interview the I make sure you know, I'm the producer, but so I'm working with the course model and the camera crew. And I set up an interview with the editor of the black newspaper, the L.A. Sentinel. I set up an interview with the head of the Urban League in L.A. We interview—I guess we interview some people, you know, the people on the street. You know, what do people think? And we put together those interviews. And when we, when the uh, reporter and I present the script. The um, senior producer on the show has questions about the perspectives from the Black newspaper editor and the Urban League leader. And those are the things that get left out of the script. So I'm like, why did you send me if you, I'm trying to tell you what people are thinking. I'm not making a judgment whether what they're thinking is accurate or not accurate, I'm telling you their position. So that when the, the verdict came, you've probably seen those pictures of the black people cheering that OJ Simpson is not found guilty and they're all, white media is all shocked. Well, I tried to tell, you know, in that story to try to say, let's present this position because people are defending him. Now, I personally thought OJ Simpson was guilty. But that was it wasn't my job, my job was to try, I thought, to try to present a perspective that would not ordinarily have been there. So I tell you that long version of that story to say that there are times when you are working um, as part of a team where you don't always get your way. You can't always say the things that you wanna say or your position may not win that particular argument. But I think you just continue to uh, try to stay in your truth. And sometimes, I, you know, I was able to get that experience in the mainstream, you know, large media organization, and I learned my storytelling skills that are really great and helpful to me. But other people make different decisions. My good friend, Stanley Nelson, who uh, is the grandson of Madam Walker's attorney, F.B. Ransom, who is the very well-known documentary producer, whose first documentary was $2 and a Dream about Madam Walker, Stanley made a decision to not work in those mainstream, those sort of corporate uh, entities and to become an independent producer and to focus on uh, telling stories about black people that give the perspective of black people. So sometimes you have to make some decisions, make some pivots and go in a different direction in order to stay, true to your own perspective but you see the different levels you know you see different filmmakers and what they're doing um how Ava DuVernay has been able to walk in her truth but you know she had with Selma she didn't get some of the credit that she deserved but you just have to keep fighting and fighting and then if you do sell if you do get to be a writer on on a show uh you have to go with what the showrunner tells you the studio is telling the showrunner and the director what to do because the studio is putting up the money. So there's always, you know, there always are some challenges that you have to navigate and negotiate. And I think that a lot of times people have, if you have five battles that you are fighting, you might win three, but you lose two. And that's kind of the way it works. But I am wondering now, If at this moment of reckoning that we're seeing where Hollywood studios and law firms and corporations and internet companies and social media companies are being pressured to take another look at some of these decisions that they made or some of these assumptions that they made, if this might not be an opening for a little bit of change. And if there's anything that I hope comes out of my experience, so, you know, I have I've been, I was fortunate that my book was turned into a series. It wasn't exactly what I had envisioned, but it still was a successful series and it has given me a bit of a platform. And one of the things that I really hope to do is to be able to empower others to speak up because I think people are afraid to speak up if they don't like something, but you know, I don't work in Hollywood. So I'm not looking for my next gig. I'm not worried about, is somebody going to hire me? I'm, I'm worried about the truth. I'm worried about trying to make sure that we don't perpetuate stereotypes and that more films get made because our stories are so interesting. They do not need to be
1: placed into these formulas. As Black consumers of content, I think it almost reminds me of politics in a way like people kind of trust that the correct information will be given to them and it's not always the case like you mentioned that you you hope for this to be an opportunity for people to learn more about Madam walker and then be you know interested in learning more and, and doing more research but then you have to think about people who are just like i just want to be entertained and watched and not really think about doing all the secondary homework so like how do you you know for example um create content create content that's, you know, interesting enough that people will, you know, do that extra research, like, you know, reading your books after watching Self-Made, or, you know, as a, as a consumer, like, understanding that, just creating a certain level of intention in your practice of consuming content, and being like, you know, I have to double check this information for myself, or kind of, you know, do more research, and learn more.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you're right, most people just want to be entertained, that's why, Real Housewives of Atlanta is it's so popular. Right. So I think you just have to know that that is the case, that that's, that's really where most people are coming from. And to find that audience that you, that, you really, um, that really resonates with you. you. know, I just think of something like Moonlight. That was a small film that had such a huge impact. He was so true to Barry Jenkins was so true to the story that he wanted to tell. And I think if you, you just have to walk in your truth and everybody is not going to love what you do. That's why there are all kinds of genres, but you know, find the, the message that you really want to give. And um, the, you know, as they say, if you build it, they will come.
1: That's it for this episode. You can find us on social media at bettertospeak underscore or on our website, bettertospeak.org. If you want to sponsor an episode and support Better to Speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.